Hey, what up guys? Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. I guess I should say, hey, what up, hello, or however I usually say it. It's Wednesday, August 30th. Crap. It is pretty much September. I was listening to Zach Bryan's song, Summertime's Close. I was out on the front porch reading, watching the sun go down. There was that kind of summertime orange where, you know, there's a little bit of a breeze in the trees. You notice it's getting darker earlier, and that song just hit home to me. I'm going, God damn, the summer is wrapping up. It's truly wrapping up. You know, the last few days I've really started to come to that realization, and not sure how I feel about that. Definitely not sure how I feel about that at all. And anyways, I want to talk about a warning from Canada, as in its foreign ministry basically has released a statement, or it's leaked a statement, talking about how there are plans to basically move on from the United States if the election in 2024 goes bad. This also mirrors academic reports out of Canada from 2022, worrying of the country going into right-wing autocracy by 2030, and I think it's interesting to kind of think about what our neighbors to the north are thinking about our polarization, our extremism, and what could be next. And I think it's important to have a conversation about how that impacts our neighbors. I also want to talk about BRICS, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. They have been holding some meetings lately. They are basically talking about creating a bigger economic bloc to be an alternative to NATO, to the EU, to the UN, and they're trying to bring in other members. And I want to kind of have a conversation about Biden and how even though people say he's weakening our status abroad and he's turning off our allies, I actually think he's bringing countries closer together and this BRIC squad, as I call it, is not actually doing that well. So we're going to talk about that. But first, as you guys know, I was covering Oliver Anthony and his song, Rich Men North of Richmond. And it's interesting. I actually have to give him a bit of an applause for a moment. As you guys know, I've talked about, other people have talked about how his song has become somewhat of a theme song for the right. Matt Walsh, Ben Shapiro, all those types, they have just jumped on his sound and have kind of said, oh, this is a right-wing song criticizing the Democrats, the political establishment. He brings up, obviously, I wish we would take care more of minors than some minors on an island somewhere, all that shit. Well, Oliver Anthony has come out, and he's basically said something to the effect of, the Republicans should stop using me. They should stop playing my song. The Fox News debate obviously started with their Joe the Plumber 2.0 moment, which was Oliver Anthony's song. And he's like, people, stop using me. I'm not a Republican. Stop pretending I'm a Republican. He's like, I hate everyone, practically. He was just shots fired. He's just like, yeah, I don't like Democrats. I don't like Republicans. I'm criticizing all of you. And even the people that are embracing me, I'm also criticizing. And there's a really good article in The Atlantic that talks about how Democrats really should be embracing Oliver Anthony's message. Maybe not all of it, because obviously he gets conspiratorial. I also don't like that he's attacking welfare queens, because I personally don't think that that's the issue to die on here. I think it's a bigger issue about taxes, about where money goes. 
and how we allocate funding. But the article talks about Chris Murphy, right? Northeast senator. Obviously, we all know him as he's been kind of at the forefront of the gun issues, trying to regulate firearms. But he's also become kind of a, I don't want to say totally Bernie Sanders-esque, but more of a left-wing populist. And he is saying that this new era is about basically bringing Trumpism and Bernie Sanderism together to kind of create a third way. And I don't know if I totally agree with that message, because as you guys know, I'm hesitant towards populists, whether they're left or right, center, far, whatever. I am hesitant about populism, but I think he is bringing up an interesting point about how the issues of our time are a little bit of Trumpism and a little bit of Bernie Sanders politics. It's a little bit of economic nationalism with a little bit of economic left-wing populism. And there's a good line that talks about how we're almost going to see an arms race, a political arms race between Republicans and Democrats to see who can become more populist and who can appeal to the working class more. And the Atlantic article, it came out on Saturday of last week, it writes here, the Republicans are aware of these shifting class tectonics. Then it interviews Senator Chris Murphy. It says, he says, I have a very smart conservative friend who describes the next years as a race to see whether the right can become more economically progressive before the left becomes a bigger tent. And basically, Senator Murphy is trying to tell Democrats, instead of making fun of this rich men north of Richmond song or looking down on people like Oliver Anthony, this is the time to make the Democratic Party a big tent, especially when you have the craziness of Donald Trump, the radicalism of Ron DeSantis, the kind of schoolboy machismo insanity of Vivek, Vivek the fake Ramaswamy, all this stuff. He's like, this is the Democrats' chance to really appeal to the working class again. And I do think it's going to be interesting to see because it's good. Like, I think the positive here is that there are Democrats that realize that this song is not just a right-wing song. It's a song that appeals to a lot of Americans, and maybe it's time to actually take these demands seriously. So check out the song if you haven't. And I just think it's good that we're at least having these conversations. But anyways... I want to turn to something a little bit less happy to kind of start this off. That was our palate cleanser, our uh, somewhat storm before the bigger storm. Anyways, I guess we're getting some more interesting takes out of Canada, our neighbor to the north. And basically the National Post, Canadian publication from my understanding, it has a pretty interesting article that a friend of mine shared with me. And it writes here in quotes, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Joy says Canada has been considering a game plan for how it, it would respond if the United States takes a far-right authoritarian shift after next year's presidential elections. She says, in quotes, We are certainly working on scenarios. This was in French during an interview with a Montreal news station. She also added that Ottawa's close political and economic ties to the U.S. means that they do need to prepare. And this makes sense. I mean, we have to remember that this is a country that, like it or not, we are politically, economically, and just strategically intertwined with. And so, yeah, countries are playing out doomsday scenarios. And I, I guess before I get further into this, I think we need to remember that this is not them saying this is going to happen. So I'm not trying to be too alarmist here, but I do think it's important to note 
that, yes, I am sure other countries also have this plan. I'm sure the United Kingdom has, some people in the United Kingdom are having similar discussions. France, Germany, right? I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure in Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky and his government are clearly talking about this because they have a lot at stake if that was to happen, were to happen, excuse me. And so, of course, these are just thought experiments at this moment, but I think it's worth covering. And so basically, there's also scholars that basically say, this is what they think would happen, is that Canada could face political refugees. Now, interestingly enough, I know some libertarians. I listen to libertarian podcasts. Obviously, I listen to left-wing podcasts as well. The right-wing ones are not talking about this as much that I listen to, but there are the prospect of political refugees, right? People that just don't like the limits on free speech that you could see in a right-wing shift. We've seen the Florida model. We've seen what people like Ken Paxton and Governor Abbott are doing in Texas. To me, not great models for a vibrant liberal democracy. But anyways, um, scholars out of Canada also say there could be economic protectionism that could hurt Canada as well. And this is one of the largest trading relationships in the world. And it could just create an economic shock to Canada. So yeah, they are worried. Then there's also intelligence sharing that could be cut off. I've talked to you guys about Schedule F where Trump and some of his allies have what to me seems like a very probable theory that they would put into action on day one if Trump was elected president in 2025, where they would basically purge union um, federal employees and make it right to work so they could then fire a lot of the civil service and then put in their own people. So then that would be an issue, I think, for intelligence sharing, scientific cooperation with Canada. Those are serious issues. And... I don't know if military protection would be on this, but it's kind of insane. All of it's kind of insane. And the article also writes here in quotes, if an increasingly authoritarian U.S. is increasingly unilateral and dismissive of traditional alliances like NATO or, or, or arrangements like NORAD, what does that damage do to Canadian security? Another person says, another question would be around American intervention in Canadian democratic processes. Already, we have to remember that far-right politicians in the U.S. did voice support for that Freedom Convoy protest in 2022. I covered that back in the time. Basically, that was where you had the truckers blocking major highways in Canada over vaccine mandates. And you had a lot of conservatives from Ted Cruz to Abbott, governor of Texas, to even Trump speaking out and sending money before that was blocked. You had Trudeau calling them out. It was kind of this like cross-borders chaos. And you wonder if more of that culture war seeps across the borders between Canada and the United States. And I think the driving force of all of this, and it's something I've talked about before, I think it's a lot of, something that a lot of my listeners have probably heard, experienced, seen, is that Trump is calling for retribution against his opponents and civil servants. He famously, back over, I think it was back in February or March, said that Russia is not the biggest threat, it's the internal enemies. Dangerous rhetoric, and if you're a foreign ally of the United States, especially someone like Canada or the United Kingdom or Germany or something like that, you're not going to like to hear that if you want to maintain a very strong alliance. And it is something that I think should be worrying. And the interesting thing here, too, is that this is actually somewhat interesting because back in, tw this was 20 early 2022, yeah, like January 3rd of 2022, Basically, there was a Canadian professor whose name escapes me, but he put out an article in Politico, I believe it was. Oh, yeah, no, it's uh, Thomas Homer Dixon, 
the founding director of the Cascade Institute at Royal Roads University in BC, which is British Columbia. He said in quotes, by 2025, American democracy could collapse following that election, causing extreme domestic political instability, including widespread civil violence. He said by 2030, if not sooner, the country could be governed by a right-wing dictatorship. And what he describes is that many events occurring could basically lead to Trump's win. He also cites the real threat of politicians not accepting a Democratic win. He just worries again. And, and so we've, we've been seeing, I think, Canada for the last couple of years expressing concerns about their, their supposedly closest ally to the north or to the south, I guess, of your Canada being quite worried about this. And we have to remember that all of the Republican nominees right now, the ones that debated and Trump, have talked about some pretty crazy things. Not, not as much with Canada, but with Mexico, right? I mean, Trump wants to end birthright citizenship, for example, which I believe is part of the 14th Amendment. Ron DeSantis, Trump, even Tim Scott believe in fortifying the borders, making it violent. Trump wants to base immigration on kind of an ideological test where if they deem you socially liberal or a communist, then you're not allowed in the country. It's a very problematic way to deem immigration because it's really hard for one person to deem someone else's political views, especially if you're biased doing it. People like Ron DeSantis, Greg Abbott, they want to put saws on buoys in the Rio Grande. So if there's immigrants crossing, trying to swim across, they'll get cut by the saws. We've obviously, obviously seen the busing of migrants. It's a mess. And of course, I think there's criticisms about hotels in like places like Portland, New York, getting filled up with migrants, footing the bill, costing hundreds of million dollars when citizens are struggling. I, I understand the criticism of how democratic cities are also handling this. I completely understand that. But the, the Republican Party's gone very radical. And then you have to talk about Ron DeSantis talks about targeting the cartels, attacking the cartels, bombing cartels, trying to eradicate fentanyl-producing facilities in Mexico. I think, this, I think the one thing that they don't talk about is how the Mexican government has said they would never support this or approve this. So no matter how they say it, this would be basically declaring war on Mexico, or I guess invading Mexico. And that's something pretty insane, because the funny thing here is that you have like Ron DeSantis and even RFK Jr. and Trump and Tucker Carlson talking about how this is going to be a never war in Ukraine, and how it's going to look like Afghanistan there, radical groups, the, the Zelensky regime, V-fake, v Ramaswamy talks about this a lot, how we're just going to lead to a radical Zelensky regime, and he's becoming a cult figure, and we can't just keep giving them weapons. But the irony here is that if you want to compare like ISIS or the Taliban or anything, <laughs> I don't see that in Ukraine, but I do see the cartels doing a lot of similar activity to ISIS, such as the beheadings and the mass killings. And so the funny thing is, is that the Republican Party has become so anti-Ukraine, but then at the same time, they are so willing to now potentially do an illegal AUMF authorization for the military use of force in Mexico and potentially help to even radicalize drug cartels and local populations even more, which to me seems a lot more similar to what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan than the war in Ukraine, which to me is clearly just kicking out a nationalist, neo-fascist government that is trying to take land that is not theirs. And so I think when you put all of this together, it's fairly understandable why the Canadians are going, what the fuck, man? Like, we can't, 
we can't do this. Like, this is really dangerous for our national security. And I would assume for as much as people say Biden is weak and he's ruined our national standing and our allies are laughing at us, nah, nah, the, <laughs> they're all, they were all laughing at Trump, guys. And now they're laughing so they don't have to cry because another Trump term would be very bad for our NATO alliance, be bad for our NORAD communications. It would be bad for many of our different treaties in the South Pacific, in like between Japan and South Korea as well, with our South and Central American allies, intelligence sharing with the Mexican government involving cartels. Like, it's just insane. And so I can understand even if the Canadians are apologizing for putting this statement out, they don't want to obviously ruffle the feathers in D.C. or anything like that. To me, it's completely understandable that the Canadians would be worried about this. And to be honest, I am worried about some of the things I, I heard at the debate when it comes to foreign policy. And I guess, I guess the end of this is that most of these candidates on the stage know better, but most of them have practically reverse-engineered their foreign policy where they are just listening to what the MAGA base wants. And maybe that's good for a primary. But I guess if you're going to be positive, I don't know how productive or effective that will be on the national stage for a general election. I really have my doubts about the strength of those arguments. But again, reverse engineering a candidacy basically puts the faith into a base that has been lied to in a lot of ways for many years now. So... <laughs> Not great, but moving on, I want to talk about BRICS. The BRICS is a group of countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Korea, or not South Korea, South Africa, B-R-I-C-S, BRICS. BRIC Squad! I'll never forget the time I met Waka Flocka Flame, <laughs> yelled out BRIC Squad at that concert. But anyways, the BRIC group of countries has always kind of been this alternative NATO, alternative union, a very weak union. It actually isn't much of a economic union, but it is kind of this alliance of what I would call a liberal countries, authoritarian, autocratic countries that don't agree with a lot of the stances of the West or NATO. And the big headline is that the BRIC group of countries has invited six new nations to join them as kind of an alternative to NATO. And this is including some of the favorites like Iran and Saudi Arabia, Always great company when you bring Saudi Arabia and Iran to the table. Now, these two, I'll just start by saying these two hate each other. So I don't really know how you bring them into kind of a quasi-trading block, sanction-busting block. But <laughs> the, the lack of logics around this is a whole other story. But The Economist has a good article from last Thursday, and it writes here in quotes, The Gathering of the Bricks brought together Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. The stated goals were to expand the club's membership and deepen its capabilities in areas such as development, lending, and financial payments, <clears throat> because of sanctions, by the way. The article continues in quotes, The event showed a widespread appetite for a less Western world order. Six countries were invited to join the BRICS starting in January 2024, including Argentina, Iran, and Saudi Arabia. The article also notes, though, it also showed how much a, how such a disparate group will struggle to be effective. And I think that's the key here is because, you know, we always hear, oh, the West is weakening. We're going to weaken NATO. We're seeing the fractures here in the West. 
But let's just think about this whole block for a minute. So first off, India and China don't really get along. India and China are both allies with Russia, give or take, in a very broad sense, right? India is also kind of an ally with the U.S. It's complicated. India has been really good at kind of playing both of us. But India is obviously part of this group, but India doesn't really want China to have more influence in this group because if China gets more powerful, then India's influence is going to be diluted, and that's good for China, bad for India. So already you see two groups in the BRICS movement that already have kind of differing interests. As I talked about on the old podcast with Drew, we always mentioned that there were always border skirmishes up in the more Himalayan areas between Indian and Chinese military groups. So these two are not exactly good friends, and they definitely fear each other. And I've always argued that India does stay close with the United States in a sense because it understands the security dilemma they have with China. But but you also then have to think, is BRICS going to have defense cooperation if India is afraid of China? Because NATO has defense cooperation. That's one of the big strengths of NATO, is mutual security. Do you really think India is going to go risk it all for China when it's afraid of China, hates China, and sees China as a security threat? I personally don't, so I think defense cooperation is probably off the table. Of course, to be devil's advocate, Russia, China, and South Korea have done a lot of military drills in South Africa recently. South Africa has been very quiet about the war in Ukraine and has been quietly on Russia's side. We have to remember that South Africa gets a shit ton of arms from Russia. So that part makes sense to me. But then I also think about Brazil. If Bolsonaro was still president, it would be one thing. But President Lula is a leftist. And while he is also kind of that horseshoe that is against the war in Ukraine and is against Western capitalism, do you really see him and Vladimir Putin being friends? I'm not totally convinced of that. Also, you have to wonder if financial infrastructure or a shared currency would be something possible. Clearly, one of the goals is to move away from the West, move away from the U.S. dollar, evade sanctions, for sure, if you're Russia. But I'm not really sure if that's possible, because it's a little bit ambitious when you have countries with very different economic and political policies. For example, Iran, China... I just don't know how they have common ground with Brazil and India. Say what you want about India, but India is a fairly capitalist country. China's kind of a protectionist, authoritarian capitalist country. South Africa, kind of in the middle there. Russia is obviously running off of a few industries and basically it's fertile grounds its military, its its oil, natural resources, Brazil, grain, meat, natural resources. Also, you have China, which is pretty much a one-party state. South Africa technically has elections, but they're all corrupt. Brazil, one of the more democratic of them. India, also fairly democratic. They want to bring in Iran and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has no 
semblance of democracy. Iran has quashed that. They want to bring in Argentina as well. Yeah, Argentina probably won't join, in my opinion, because say what you want about Argentina, but Argentina is also at least democratic. It has fairly robust elections. So how do these countries come to the table and say, oh, yeah, we're going to have a currency and create a common financial infrastructure? I don't particularly see that happening. And you have to also think that there would probably be more Western sanctions on all of these countries if they formed a closer tie with one another. I don't know. It doesn't sound particularly promised, promising to me. And The Economist has a good point here as another criticism of this. It writes here in quotes, rather than a body of capable... Sorry, sorry, let me start over. It says, rather than a body capable of acting widely and consistently in a coordinated way, building global norms and institutions, the BRIC may end up with a significant but more limited role due to the nature of the countries involved. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty fair analysis of how I would see Brick going. Now, again, to be devil's advocate, what would worry me if Brick could get their shit together <laughs> or something like that would be if they start appealing to those smaller countries, the Zimbabwe's, the Venezuela's, the Vietnam's, which right now obviously wouldn't happen. But these countries that are kind of on the periphery, bring them to the table and at least have them involved in this. They could at least have some form of a critical mass against Western alliances, which I don't think would still be like a blunt, a blunt force by any means, but it would be something that would stand up against a lot of our Western alliances. But still, I personally don't see all these. I mean, when you say that they're trying to get Iran and Saudi Arabia to the table here, I just go, that's not grata. That's, that's just not going to happen. And Argentina then as well, like... I just don't I just don't see it. And it's interesting because I've been following a lot of media from the United States and around the world and people are saying this is showing the West weakening and countries trying to find an alternative. Do you know what I see here is China and Russia trying to lead a sanction busting alternative so they can basically evade accountability. And they're trying to bring other countries with them into this spiral. But like China's been trying to create an alternative to the West for a while. And yes, the Belt and Road Initiative, their big invest capital investment project has brought some wealth and prosperity to countries ranging from like Indonesia to Pakistan to Kenya. But the debt traps that it is putting these countries in is already bad. And we saw chaos in Sri Lanka what, I think back last summer, where we saw political unrest, high debt-to-capital ratios going on. I don't know if that's sustainable either. So again, I think this is China mainly, with Russia on its side, trying to evade accountability. And of course, you know, Vivek, or Vivek Ramaswamy talks about how the China-Russia alliance is a big threat, and that's why he wants to pull out of Ukraine for some reason and give Putin 20% of Ukraine. That alliance has already been there, bro. Sorry, bro, but that's just the way it is. I'll talk to you in the tech bro terms that you seem to function in here. But I, I just don't see this flourishing, and I also don't see the Western alliance weakening. I would argue that the war in Ukraine has actually somewhat reinvigorated NATO. We have expanded its membership. Finland is joining, probably Sweden, if we can get around the hurdles. <clears throat> Turkey, you need to be chill. Also, Biden 
I just can never understand why people think he looks weak. Biden is doing much better than Barack Obama and Trump combined when it comes to foreign policy. He has been working in Asia to counter China. August 18th, he had a summit at Camp David. Leaders of Japan and South Korea were there. And he actually brought Japan and South Korea to the table. And we have to remember, South, <laughs> South Korea and Japan have a pretty brutal history that started in the early 20th century. World War II made it even worse, and they've still kind of been at odds with each other for the last 80 years since then. So the fact that he was actually able to get them at Camp David this month to agree to intensify ballistic missile cooperation and establish a, mili a military hotline is good. And again, it tells me why China wants BRICS to be more strong, stable, and expansive. Because South Korea and Japan now have a military hotline and they're collaborating together. Which, if you're China, is your worst nightmare. Biden helped orchestrate that. Probably not Biden specifically. <laughs> I would imagine the State Department and the DOD. Antony Blinken has been a great Secretary of State from everything I have read. And I'm impressed with what the State Department and the Defense Department have been doing. And I'm guessing they have kind of headlined this. But also, some less talked about things is that Biden has actually struck some deals. Um, the United States is putting more military bases in the Philippines and Papua New Guinea. Again, something that would probably worry China. Again, if I was China, I would not be probably thrilled about that. I think there are conversations to be had about whether we should be expanding our military presence there. But then again, you have to wonder... Is it really that bad? Because it's exactly what China's doing in the South China Sea. Vietnam feels risk. Japan feels risk. South Korea feels risk. So, of course, we help our allies. That's what we do. And I think Biden's reminded the world that we care about our friends. And getting back to that Canada warning, that's what a Trump 2.0 presidency, or, or, or a DeSantis, in my opinion, or a Vivek, Vivek the fake presidency, all of those would do is they would pull back on this reestablishment of alliance. And going back to Biden, it looks like our relationship, which they call unbreakable, with Australia is actually getting better. The Economist writes here in quotes, the unbreakable defense relationship with Australia is deepening. Following the AUKUS agreement struck in March, amid a flurry of equipment deals and military ex exercises, things are getting better. The article continues, should war break out with China, the Aussies seem the most willing to fight at America's side. Australian land, sea, and air bases are expanding to receive more American troops. And I think, I think part of this, too, is that Biden understands that Donald Trump could be back in office. And he is trying to do this quickly. He's trying to establish relationships to make sure that our enemies, the autocratic regimes around the world, all know that we're serious about our friends, and we're serious about mutual defense. And I've just always been surprised when people say, oh, we have so many issues in the U.S., so we shouldn't be spending any money abroad. I, 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 hate, to, I hate to back up Mike Pence, but he was one of the only ones in the debate last week who said we can walk and chew gum at the same time. America can be good at home and abroad, and we don't have to focus on one or the other. And I think part of America's strength, actually, is that we do try to be, and of course we haven't always been, we've had our issues, but generally speaking, we try to be a leader around the world of strength. And not just strength, 
but democratic values, norms, and elections. And that's why it's important, I think, that we maintain that. So I think by backing up other democracies around the world, we also somewhat back up our own stability at home. I, I truly believe that. I am sure there's people that will not believe that or agree with that, and that is totally fine. We're all entitled to our opinions. There's obviously difference of perspective on that. But I am impressed that Biden has brought South Korea and Japan to the table to agree. He's been working with Papua New Guinea, the Philippines, who the Philippines have kind of been, between us and China, they've been kind of playing both of us. Not the best actor, but the fact that they're agreeing now to the threat of China and they understand that we need to, that they need to work with us, I think that is good news. Australia really deepening its relationship with us, that is all good news. The Economist ends another good article, the one that talks about BRICS that I mentioned earlier. It ends with a warning, though. It says here in quotes, If Mr. Trump becomes president in 2024, Biden's rejuvenation of America's security alliances could yet be undone. All the more reason for America and its allies to keep advancing at speed. And I agree. And I think, obviously nothing happens quickly, but we're doing it quick enough. And I think that's good to see. Anyways, folks, before we're out of here, I, I do just want to briefly talk about Tucker Carlson. Episode 20 is out on Twitter, or X, which I, ugh, I hate that name. But anyways, he brings Victor Orban in. Victor Orban, the liberal guy from Hungary, who, in my opinion, created the liberal democratic framework that American Republicans, or uh, America MAGA Republicans, are following now, which is the idea of mainly controlling the media, reestablishing the courts in your favor, and making sure that the electoral ballots are counted in your favor so that you maintain power. And I'm just going to play the like minute-long intro, which is kind of a synopsis of the interview, because <laughs> I couldn't get through it. There's just so much retconning of what's happening. Viktor Orban calls the West a liberal. He says that Hungary is being treated worse than Russia by the U.S., which is just insane. Again, the victimhood politics that Trump also conducts back home. And this is, it's crazy. Victor um, introduces, Victor, I mean, not Victor, Tucker introduces Victor Orban in this interview as the longest serving prime minister in Hungarian history. The funny thing is, is that most of the West considers Victor Orban a dictator now and an autocrat because he has controlled elections using a liberal means. So of course he's going to be the longest serving prime minister when elections don't seem to count there. So I'm going to play this, then I'll have some thoughts at the end. The Biden administration described you in the United States in the media as a fascist. Are you worried about being crushed by the United States? It's dangerous, may I say. I'm not the favorite politicians of the liberals, unfortunately, but nobody's perfect, you know. There are certain things which are more important than me, than my ego, family, nation, God. Liberal originally meant freedom, but now in Europe, liberal means that you are enemy of the freedom. We are ally to the United States, and we are worse treated than the Russian. If you respect democracy, don't you let countries govern themselves? If you take a step back, the point of NATO is to provoke war with Russia. This is a bad strategy. We have to stop it. We cannot beat them. They will not kill their leader. They will never give it up. They will invest more. It's a joke. It's a very dangerous moment now. That's obvious to you. Not just for me. Everybody on the street. The Third World War knocking on our door. You were just in an election. Did you consider at any point just indicting your challenger? Wouldn't that have been easier? To do what's going on now in your country, you know, to use the justice system 
against the political opponents. <laughs> In Hungary, I think it, it's impossible to imagine. That oh, God. I, I, I had to cut it off, but... Um... I like how Tucker says, I thought protecting democracy meant leaving countries alone. He doesn't seem to understand how in history there's times where democracies come together to stop, you know, fascism, authoritarianism, whatever you want to call it, communism, kind of what Vladimir Putin's doing right now. I think protecting democracy does mean responding to a very violent regime that's trying to do shit. Also, Viktor Orban seems to be basically saying that we're never going to take out Putin, so why are we worrying about it? It's going to lead to World War III. And of course, he's not wrong that it's probably going to lead to World War III if we keep escalating. I think there's serious concerns there, and I don't think anyone wants that. And I think he, I, I watched some of the interview later where he talks about how the Russians just have more manpower, more people to throw into the meat grinder, and the Ukrainians just have less resources. And I think all of that is true. But the argument that, tr that him and Trucker, I keep wanting to call him Trucker Carlson, but Tucker Carlson and Viktor Orban seem to be just thinking that it's not okay to even have these conversations about trying to stop Russia from what it's doing. And again, we can, we, can say, we can say and think two things at the same time. We can think that this probably will become a stalemate in Ukraine, which I think it will be, and we have to have a conversation about what we do then. But we also can identify that Actors like Viktor Orban, who is still defying the EU and NATO and is still taking energy from Russia, is still defending Putin. We can also say that that's not correct. And I was telling one of my buddies earlier, we were, we were texting over this, and I was just saying, like, Tucker Carlson to me is becoming just more and more unhinged, more and more dangerous, because this is a guy who, it's clear Tucker doesn't believe any of this. But he is so detached from morals, character, and ethics that he just doesn't care. He wants the ratings. And I would take an uninformed person's perspective, if it's dangerous, over a person that knows better and keeps doing these interviews and asking dangerous questions. I mean, in that clip I played, Viktor Orban talks about how it's so bad in the U.S. that we're using politics to to um, convict the president or to, you know, to stop him from getting reelected and all that. No, I mean, the guy has over 90 different indictments and charges going on now. To me, that's worth noting. It's not like just, it's, it's a political witch hunt at this point. It's like the legal system's just coming after him because the guy's clearly a criminal. And it's kind of the Al Capone thing is that when you do so many illegal actions, eventually you're going to get caught for something, right? But anyways, another dangerous interview from Tucker. And again, this is the counter-programming that we're getting. And of course, it's probably going to get a lot of views. Not as many as Twitter's going to say, because people scrolling through Twitter is going to be different than people actually watching the whole thing. But anyways, that's the counter-programming out there. I think that the U.S. is still working well with our allies. I think we have a lot of security threats. And Viktor Orban and the Republican Party's new fascination with him and buddy-buddy relationship with him is scary. I'm going to end the podcast on that. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. I'll be back. Have a great rest of your day. Avita Sain. Adios. Ciao.